Welcome back to the third podcast in our Glory Sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live-streamed every Sunday at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon titled, Light in the Darkness. Welcome everyone to City on a Hill. Glad to see so many bright, alert, happy faces shining. It's a good morning, right? We've got a little bit of fall left. Glad that you chose some time to make some time to be a part of worship here together. We're in this little mini-series called Glory, and uh, we started a couple weeks ago. We're taking a break between uh, book studies to focus in on something that I shared with, with you guys, our church something that was kind of heavy on my heart, something that I was uh, observing and feeling convicted of and, and thinking that, you know, this is a message that we really need for our church and for the church today. So we paused between the book of James and where we're going, the book of Ruth, in a couple weeks to think about and to understand better the glory of God. So uh, as I said, we started a couple weeks ago and this is really basically where we're going. Last week, we're talking about uh, where we find the glory of God and why that matters in the presence of the eternal living and wonder-filled God. And then, uh, and, and by the way, I gave you a little um, homework assignment. So if you haven't done it yet, you can still do it. Okay? Everybody loves homework, right? So take your Bible. If you've got a concordance in your Bible, you can start there or get an app that has a word search tool and look up the word glory and go to those different passages. Pick a passage. You know, sometimes the glory is about other things or, or a man's glory, but usually, and there are hundreds of examples in Scripture where the word glory is used in, in reference to the glory of God. So pick a passage and just read it. Just think about how God stands apart as eternal and, and living and wonder-filled and so forth. You'll enjoy it. You'll begin, I hope, I pray, to appreciate greater the glory of God. So that was this past week. We're coming to that next line here. Let me give you just kind of a, a synopsis here to catch us up to speed. All these different messages uh, interrelate and connect. Uh, last week, we looked at... Um, the glory of God, mainly in the example of Moses and the people of Israel and so many different places, at Moses and, and the way God used him with Israel in particular, that the glory of God was present uh, and the people could see, but it was always from a distance, if you remember. And these great, mighty, majestic, powerful things, these displays of the presence of God were awe-inspiring, awesome things uh, but if they got too close, it would cost them their life. In particular, God mentioned and God stressed with Moses, if you see my face, you'll die. No one sees the face of God and lives. And that's not some arbitrary power trip that God is on. That is the demand of His holiness and His glory. His excellencies in every way demand that. No one can just go before God and look at Him. Gaze at the presence of the face of God. So we looked at that as an example. We looked at this weird uh, occurrence of a veil. Uh, if, you, if you were here, remember that. Uh, this veil that Moses had to put over his face. 
that there was this glow, something, uh, it's hard to describe, we don't, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but something of the glory of God, when Moses would be around God, something of the glory would go with him and would radiate out of him. And people saw Moses, and instead of, oh, cool, let me get close to that. What's, what's happening to your face? Instead of that, which is something you think people might do, there was fear. There was awe. Something God-working, God-related, God-originated is happening here, and they step back in fear and wonder. And then Moses had to hang this veil over his face. So we, look, we, uh, we went from there, and then we moved to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So Paul gives us this, Christ-centered perspective. He looks back at Moses and his veil, and he interprets the original testament for the believers in Corinth and also for us today. He looks back and says the greatest glory, yep, there was a veil, and the, and the glory of God was hidden and veiled, and the people never did understand it. That was a great glory and a strange, awesome thing to be around and to be fearful of but that was nothing compared to the greatest glory when the Holy Spirit removes the veil and shows us Jesus. And that's where we're going with this little sermon series that I'm putting together. We've got to come and we get to come face to face as the Spirit removes the veil, that last border, that last standard between us and God, even that... So he's using it as a metaphor, right, for us today. Even that gets removed and we get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is an awesome thing that as we ponder it ought to drop us to our knees. That's where I want us to go with this series. Through Christ, that veil is taken away and we can see personally the glory of God with our hearts as well, our, as well as our eyes. That is the greatest glory of God, and we see it in Jesus. Now, Paul continues to develop this idea that we looked at last week into chapter 4. So we'll look at that, the first six verses. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hearts. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the face of Jesus. In other words, all of what was to be feared, all that would bring death in the past by looking at the face of God. And he says Jesus is the very image of God. So, if you look at Jesus, you look at God. 
There's no distinction or difference. Jesus is God. The image of God. So where there was once fear, where there was once judgment that would lead to death, he's saying there is something else brand new. The glory brings life. The up-close glory of an intimate, intimate, excuse me, intimate relationship with Jesus. That's what he's talking about when you get to see the face of Jesus. You, just like seeing the face of any, knowing somebody, drawing near them, getting up close and personal, seeing their face, face-to-face relationship. That's what he's talking about. There is, with the Creator, Jesus, there is no more fear and no more veil and no more hiding in the face of Jesus. Now, there are all sorts of of creative efforts and endeavors throughout the ages as people have come to know, over the centuries now, as people have come to know Jesus face to face, they have sought to express themselves in all these wonderful, beautiful, sometimes weird, uh, but many times intriguing and worshipful even kinds of things. Uh, Whether it's uh, the arts and music or in plays or dramatic interpretations, uh, in books, um, uh, poets, philosophers, music. Uh, all of these different things are, are these uh, uh, avenues are ways to express back to the glorious one that I want to give you glory because I've seen you and you've changed me. Lots of different examples. Uh, this morning, I was listening to Kanye. Okay, uh, Every morning, every Sunday morning, I get up early and I pray, and I review notes, and this morning, I wanted to hear a little bit of his gospel album. How many Kanye fans do we have here? Zero! All right. Okay, this is a real moment there, okay? I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I've never listened to Kanye before. That's my pop culture reference for today. I just chalked that up. So, started listening to Kanye. I couldn't help. I'm so curious. Maybe you saw in the news. The Kanye is now professing faith in Jesus. And Kanye put out a, a gospel album. It is now out. I was listening to part of it. And it's, maybe you noticed when you came in, you heard some rap. You were listening to Kanye leading you into worship. Ha <laughs> ha! You wonder what that was? Okay, you're coming into worship with Kanye leading you. Kind of a crazy thing. I don't, you know, I'm not going to get into whether or not his conversion is real or true, or we'll, we'll see. I sure hope it is, right? Because even, even, let's say you hate his stuff and his music and who he is and what he's done, but can Jesus change Kanye? You better believe it. And because of that change, as he's seen, and I hope and trust and believe is true that he's seen the face of Jesus, and now he's producing music that reflects that, and he wants to give glory back to God. That's a cool thing, right? That's what happens when a life is changed and, you, and you've seen the light and you want to pour back and you want to give back and you want to give glory to who it is due. So I hope it's true and we need to pray for Kanye, especially when he's in the, in the public light, right? And critical, uh, judgmental opinions and whatever will make it hard for him to keep growing in his faith. So pray that God puts the right people in his life and he continues to seek out fellowship 
and he finds some good disciples because that's what he needs now more than anybody's critique or judgment, right? Amen? That's what we all need when we come to Jesus, uh, even though the past has been whatever, and we'll look at more of the whatever past this morning, uh, doesn't matter. In Jesus, doesn't matter. He can take and change and transform anybody. So we believe that this morning. So what is the big picture of the glory of Jesus? When we see His face, what happens? What begins to change? Well, we see it. We're going to look at this passage briefly. and We're going to hear a personal story this morning, okay? Of what happens when Jesus is clearly seen and a life is changed. But in this passage, we see the glory of Jesus. Paul tells us in the truth, not your preferences, in His mercy, not your abilities, and in His light, not your darkness. All right? We're going to cover those three things as they come out of the passage here this morning. The truth is out there. That's another pop culture reference, which also dates me by 40 years. Okay? Those of you who are old will get that. If you don't get it, it doesn't really matter. But what Paul says is this. He mentions truth here in this passage. He says in verse 2, after he said we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word, but he says by the open statement of truth. So he's claiming that he knows the truth. Truth and the search for truth has been part of history even well before Jesus uh, and all the Greek philosophers before him. That's been a part especially of our Western culture that maybe you're familiar with, but cultures all around the world. Questioning, wondering, seeking uh, truth. What is truth? In the moment, as the Gospel of John records, that Jesus is before, in the moment He's before Pilate, right before the condemnation and crucifixion, what does Pilate ask Him? What is truth? He's getting deep and philosophical as He's standing before this condemned man. And what does Jesus say? Nothing. Now, most of the time, Jesus says nothing, and that's what the prophets said he would do. He would stand silent before his accusers, right? Uh, so he did that, but there's something else going on here that I think is real rich and significant. Pilate asks, what is truth? Jesus doesn't have to say anything. Why? Because he's looking at truth. And that's the standard that defines the gospel and our lives in the gospel. Jesus is truth. He's looking at him. John 18, 38. So the age-old search for truth still goes on, even in an age of post-Christendom, post-modern kind of thinking where all truth is relative. But still there's, at least you could say there's truisms that still exist in our culture and society. People still believe that if you push hard enough in, in particular directions, you're going to find something that has to be true uh, even you know, even when you look at, uh, for an example, uh, the study of a moral or not morals, the study of ethics in business and the business culture that seems to have uh, a, a massively eroding understanding of what any ethics are in business uh, and uh, business degrees and especially master's degrees uh, make you take an ethics course. Still, I think right that's still part of the thing. So where where does this ethical understanding come from? Well, your professor, and if you want to get a passing grade, then you know you do what your professor says and you can go along with him or her. Uh, but beyond that, our society, our culture has certain standards still of, of ethics and related moralisms 
But even those are changing, and as our society changes, then what is ethical anymore? This is a crisis right now, not just in business, in the medical field, you name it. Why do we do what we do? Well, it, it goes back to, or it has to go back to something else, or else everything's up for grabs. What I'm saying is that's what people tend to believe if you push far enough, even if they reject you know, firsthand, immediately they reject what, you know, truth or whatever. It's what you think it is, what you define it. Well, we still want to believe that there's something else that's more stable, that, that doesn't flux, that doesn't shift all the time with wherever the culture or society is going. That's what Paul is saying. There is something here that we're presenting to you that goes beyond whatever the cultural or societal norm is in Corinth. And from what I understand in Corinth, it was basically a moral free-for-all. And this is pagan culture, you know, far past uh, before any influence of Christianity in the Western world. So it really was a free-for-all. Uh, the ethics and the morality, they far different than what we were thinking of today. I mean, if you went to Vegas, if you went to Bourbon Street, New Orleans, if that would, be, that would be nothing. That would be a Sunday school outing compared to Corinth, okay? There really is no comparison to what was going on there. So in the midst of a cultural free-for-all, Paul is saying we communicate truth, that Jesus is truth, that you can trust that, that he defines it, and in fact, he is truth. So what we have here, what Paul's communicating, what we have in the gospel is the story of truth and what truth does. And don't confuse that with, you know, don't confuse truth by equating it with just knowing more, with having more content, with more knowledge. And that happens all the time. We do that every day, or a lot of people do that every day. So as the Spirit lifts the veil, Paul is telling us, it's not just the knowledge of God, you know, not just truth equals knowledge, that is revealed. What does he say? the knowledge of the glory of God. So don't read too quickly or gloss too quickly over that. There is something far more important than just knowing more about God. You got that? And especially if you claim to be a believer, let that sink in right now really deep. It's one thing to know about God, and we speak of that a lot in different ways. You can know things, details, you can have knowledge of God but it's a far different situation to be intimate with God, to have the veil lifted, to be face-to-face -face with God, and then begin to realize there is a glory here I can't touch. There is something else going on that's beyond me. And I realize more and more of my nature and how cruddy, deeply messed up I am in the view or in light, in light of who Jesus is. The light comes on. In my heart, my eyes are open. I begin to understand what the knowledge of the glory of God is all about at work in my heart. Now, truth has an edge to it, doesn't it? If you hit something and you say that it's truth or claim that something is truth, then what also is happening? Well, something else isn't truth, right? And that's where truth has the edge, the edge of offense, the edge of, I don't know if I like that. Uh, and, and even in passive-aggressive societies, 
there is a point where uh, I don't like that, so I'm going to go tell somebody else about it. Okay? Not you that's presenting it to me, but I'm going to tell one of my friends about what you said. That goes on all the time. Truth has an edge to it. Uh, it is possible to reject the truth and face the consequences of rejecting the truth. Paul takes us into that. The edge has a harsh reality to it. So what does Paul say? He says that minds uh, uh, of unbelievers are blinded. The mind is. Uh, there's something at work here that keeps them from seeing the truth and understanding it. And he calls it the gods. Uh, uh, what verse is that? The God of this world in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world. So what, what is that getting after? Or especially today, how do we understand that? Is he talking about Satan? Is he talking about demon experiences or something in the spiritual realm? Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't quantify it uh, when he says the God of this world. So we don't know exactly what he's referring to. But you don't have to go straight to the demonic. Uh, you, don't even, you don't have to go there at all, I think, to get a good understanding of what's going on today. What, you know... What does the God of this world today mean? Uh, I think that God or those gods that are out there say that truth is whatever, whenever, however you like to see it and understanding. There's no edge to it. It is relative. So here's the deal. And here's the effect that we're seeing. If there is no edge, if truth is always relative, if it doesn't really matter anymore what you say you believe, then I'll believe not something, because something never satisfies anymore. What I'll believe is nothing. Or at least say I believe nothing, which is really not you know, being uh, honest anyway. But here's an example of that. Pew Research, U.S. Religious Landscape Survey recently came out. So the Pew Research people keep uh, on top of this understanding of where people are at in our country and what they believe. So I thought this was an interesting comparison. Back in 2009, the percent of adults who identify as Christian, 77%. I don't know what questions they ask. So if you ask me later, you have to get online and see what the research tools are that they used, which is always important, right? Because somebody says they're a Christian and they could have no understanding of, of at least not have a, a shared or similar understanding. So I don't know exactly. But they're pretty thorough in what they do, so we can go with it for now, okay? So, percent of adults identify as Christian used to be 77%. Ten years later, it drops significantly to 65%. Percent of adults who identify as religiously unaffiliated. So you get this, um, what a lot of people are calling this group of people in our country as the nuns. Maybe, you're, maybe you've heard that before. They're saying, uh-uh, I don't believe in nothing. I don't believe in anything. Which, again, probably isn't quite accurate, but at least in the options they have in the research, they are saying they are officially, traditionally, religiously unaffiliated. From 17% to 26%, which represents an increase of almost 30 million people. If you think that the speaking the truth about Jesus doesn't have consequences, you are mistaken. People won't get it. And a growing number of people, and maybe some of you are here, uh, will hear that and go, I don't, maybe that's okay with you, but I choose not to believe that stuff. It's not important to me. That's good for you if you like that sort of thing, but I don't need it. 
And I'm not against you. I just don't get the point of what you're talking about. That is our culture and what's going on. An increase of almost 30 million people. If you, you can do the math, uh, the trajectory so far isn't changing. So it will get closer and closer together, which is an opportunity. Can I add this? For those of you who know Christ and have been transformed by the truth of the gospel, for you to present that in a way that is direct, that is new even. There is a growing number of people who have never heard about Jesus or have been religiously inoculated against Jesus and the gospel. They believe they've heard enough, thanks, no thanks, but they've never been drawn close to Jesus through someone else who has a personal relationship with Him. You can have a brand new conversation with somebody that is, to say the least, eye-opening as God uses you. So I'm just throwing that out there. It's never, in the, I mean really, past Christendom right now, it's never been this dramatic in our country. The opportunity that we have today for those of you who know Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he talks about. The truth is out there and it's actually in here. And I get to share it. So second thing we'll look at. In his mercy, not your ability, or I would even say your inability. What does he begin with? He says, therefore, in light of all these things I'm talking about, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul and his struggle is real with these believers. Why is it so real? Well, he's laying out this whole argument. Um, he argues, but he doesn't argue uh, with these people in this church uh, about his legitimacy as an apostle and as a teacher. But he was known as not a great speaker. There are other people who are going around teaching who are more influential, they're more charismatic, they're more impressive than Paul. Don't you wish you could have seen what this guy really looked like and what he sounded like? I mean, is he just putting himself down? You know, is he overly humble? Does he have a complex? Is he short? I, you know, I always wonder these things. Well, maybe he was short, I don't know. I wonder these things about Paul. Uh, but there must be some legitimacy or else he wouldn't be going into the depth that he does in, in describing what's really going on with the gospel and, and what is truly significant, what's of value in his ministry. He's not claiming to be the best and all of everybody because none of that really matters is what he's saying. All of this is by what? The mercy of God. God chooses him Paul, to be the, the, the preacher and the speaker, uh, uh, he doesn't have all the amazing ministry skills to compete with all the other guys, but the glory is in the fact that God chooses Paul and sends Paul of all people. He is merciful, which we'll look at in a second and why I'm saying that, merciful even to a rebellious guy like Paul and works through him. So that's truly glorious. What's truly glorious in our lives is very similar. When you pause to consider maybe the issues of sin and the rebellion in your life and your heart, but you don't even have to go there when you consider your own shortcomings, when you consider your own insecurities, inabilities. It's not all just the sinful stuff. It's how you think you just don't measure up in comparison with other people. I don't have the same skill set, same ability, the same influence, the same gifting. It's all, a, you know, it's all distracting 
and it all leads us in a dead-end path. What he continues to talk about here, which I think I've got the verse up here. Yes, 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 7, and we didn't read this earlier, is this. But, he says, we, he includes himself in this argument, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and to not, and not to us. A jar of clay, made out of clay, is the most common, the cheapest thing around that he could think of at that time. Use it for common, everyday purposes, even the chamber pot. A lot of guys, when they're interpreting this, go straight to the chamber pot. Well, you know what a chamber pot is, right? If you don't, you can ask your parents later. I'm not going to get into that. It's gross, right? But, but that would have also been a jar of clay, uh, and maybe that's more dramatic for preaching purposes. Because you're a chamber pot and I am too. <laughs> Maybe that's where they go with that. That simple, that ordinary, everyday, even the gross stuff use. But, but, it doesn't end there. By the mercy of God in Jesus, we have what? This treasure, this mind-blowing treasure that appears in all of us. It's not about the clay. For any of us, if you get hung up with the clay, you're missing the point. Don't stop there. Go further where Paul reminds us to go. It's the treasure that counts. No matter who you are or what you've done, how Jesus changes you and speaks through you and shines through you. What does he say? To show the surpassing power. Now think about that for a second. Passing what? You know, he doesn't, you know, you have to, if you go back and look at what he's talking about, it, surpassing what? That's for you to answer. What does this power of God in you pass over, go through? What is it greater than? Think about that. The struggle you've had, the insecurity you've had, the issue you've had with God or with others. It's greater. Nothing stops the treasure of Christ in you. This power is greater than everything else. The surpassing power. And where does he take us? We don't have time to read this whole passage. It's an awesome passage for encouragement and renewal and thinking about the gospel in you. But he takes us to reminding us, and that's our theme, the greater glory. So he goes to verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul knows affliction. He was beaten and imprisoned and starved and shipwrecked. He knows all of that. Beaten close to the point of death. He refers that. He, re he refers to that as momentary light affliction. That's a viewpoint, right? That's perspective, right? The garbage of this life, even that which threatens this life, is nothing compared to this glorious, what does he say again? The eternal weight of glory. Remember, maybe you don't remember. Well, I'll tell you. So the first week we taught, we define what glory is. And there's something about a weight. There's a weight 
There is a substance. There's a significance to the glory of God. Okay? We have, so we have to get beyond those things that are you know, superficial, the things we kind of glory in, whether the Vikings are, have a winning record or not, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, that's a glorious thing. <laughs> Whatever. You know, the Gophers are, are, they haven't been defeated yet. That's kind of a glorious thing if you're into you football. There's nothing compared to the weight, the significance of the glory of God that He says is beyond all comparison. Do you know that glory? Is there something in you that longs for more of that glory that cannot be compared, that surpasses even everything else, even the frustrations, even the afflictions, even the doubts? The glory comes with the mercy of Christ as He works in you, as He works in me. One final thing. We talked about the truth, not your preferences, is mercy, not your abilities, and in His light, not the darkness. So, once again, chapter 4, verse 6, for God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul goes all the way back to creation. Let light shine out of darkness. God is a God of light. That's the metaphor used throughout Scripture. It's a fascinating uh, 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 weaving path through all of what Scripture teaches. John uses the metaphor of light significantly, repeatedly in his Gospel and also in his epistles. We're, we keep, we're keep, uh, the Bible keeps bringing us back to considering how God is light and how God's light shines out even from creation outward. That even though everything in unformed universe is dark and void and empty and without purpose, and sometimes that's what life looks like, that light shines in your darkness. What does that look like with Paul? Paul knows exactly what that looks like. Paul had his light shine moment. Back in the book of Acts, he's on his way to persecute Christians. He's on his road to this, this city called Damascus. He has power in, in, the, in that part of the world at this point. He has influence. He has the ticket to go throw people into jail as he wants to. He has authority to do that sort of thing, to pass judgment, even execution in this culture. He is out to kill Christians. You think Kanye is bad. I just had to throw that out. Okay, okay back to Paul. He's bad. He's really bad. He's on the road and the light shines and everybody drops uh, and Jesus appears. And I think when Paul is saying knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he says that from personal experience. He's seen Jesus. And Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting not these other people? What does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? Everything that Paul did was an affront to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus still lives and Jesus is in followers. Then, as He is today, the light, the glory, of the knowledge of God in you, transforming you. Why do you persecute me? Ah! You know, and the story continues, right? He struck blind. Darkness. Light, darkness. There is the imagery. There is the metaphor again. 
And then finally, uh, the, the scales drop off of his eyes and he sees and he's called into ministry. He doesn't even know what being a Christian means. No one's used that word yet. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It doesn't, when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense in the way that we think becoming a Christian should look like today. Jesus calls a murderer to the greatest ministry of the world, going to the Gentile world. And, and, he, and he doesn't do it initially. He's got his period of mentoring and discipleship. The book of Acts you know, lays that out for us. So it's not like he's thrown directly into it. But we don't see this cute, uh, measurable, objective way that we tend to look at becoming a Christian today. Are you following me? Jesus chooses this guy and begins him on this path all because of God's choosing. Certainly he didn't deserve it. Certainly there's nothing in there uh, that, that would merit him special status before God. And God chooses this guy to change the world. It's not about ability or inability. It's the light of the Gospel that changes anybody into somebody because of the person, Jesus Christ. What does Paul go on to say about his relationship with Jesus? But whatever gain I had, anything I was before Jesus, I count it as loss. That's an interesting Greek word. If you know Greek at all, uh, skubalon. It's a human excrement. Whatever the street word is for that, I'll let your mind go there. <laughs> it's that. Everything great I thought I was, it is worse than nothing. A smelly heap. And I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Paul had a face-to-face -face encounter with the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. The veil was li lifted and he saw and he believed and he followed Jesus. All who trust Jesus have this encounter. Now, I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to ask Tyler to come up. Mr. Tyler Harrison has graciously agreed to share a little bit of his story when the veil came off and he began understanding and believing. So Tyler, I'm going to turn it over to you. You want to? You don't need this. No, that's okay. All right. Thanks for having me. It's a real privilege to to come before you guys and share some of what God has done in my life. Bruce asked me to share about the time that the gospel first shown its life, shown its light in my life. Uh, that would be December of 2012. Uh, I was 18 years old, and I had just come back from my first semester at college, and. I'd been raised in the church and had served uh, just doing slides and things like that in the church, been somewhat involved, and it was kind of full steam ahead towards a double life. Um, I had been involved with the golf team and was on scholarship with the school, academic scholarship as well. So from an outside perspective, things going quite swell. Uh, but there was the other life too. I had tasted alcohol for the first time at 16 and had been kind of quietly drinking ever since. And uh, was very careful not to get caught. I didn't want to disappoint my parents. Uh, I didn't want to lose scholarship, things like that. But um, definitely, definitely a double life going on. 
Um, on top of that, I'd begun to objectify women and seeing things um, just in a really sinful way. Uh, pornography began to be a regular part of my life. And, and there I was, still on Sunday mornings, just trying to hide Saturday night from Sunday morning. Um, so back to December of 2012, uh, my brother had recommended a book to me that quoted Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And it's Isaiah kind of indicting the people of Israel and the way that they had lived a double life. Uh, the context is quite different from, from what I was doing, but God's word was no less sharp as it cut to my heart. Isaiah said, uh, the Lord says that these people are far from me, or sorry, near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is nothing more than a commandment taught by men. And as I read that, I just felt the weight of my own sin and my double life just wash over me in a way that I'd never seen before. Um, I just quickly realized everything that I had done to conceal um, conceal a double life from my parents and, and other family. It was for nothing. God had seen it all, and I had, I had rebelled against the holy God in ways that I didn't even comprehend. Um, and I just quickly realized how I had no righteousness of my own. And all the truth that I'd been taught as a kid in church washed over me, that Christ died for my sin, uh, that his suffering was for my sake. Um, and it just gave a, a whole new weight to what Jesus did on the cross. Going forward over the next couple of months, I sought to, to seek a life in Christ. I started going to a college ministry at uh, my college, and, and I saw that the, the love that, that this group had for each other was really authentic, and that drew me in. They, they showed themselves to be his disciples by their love for each other, and they began to disciple me. They began to call me out of sin and call me out of pornography and other, other terrible things that I was involved in, and they, uh, they, they really loved me in that way. Um, those months actually were some of the hardest months of my life. And looking back now, I can see that that's the simple truth that darkness hates the light. And my flesh was at battle with the light that was coming into my life, the light of Christ. And, and I struggled with sin and pornography in those months probably more than I did before, or at least became more evident that I was struggling with them. Um, but God was faithful to continue the work that he started in me. And he is still faithful to continue that work now. Um, I haven't struggled with pornography in years. And that's a testament to God's faithfulness in that work. Hmm. Um, at that time, I was dead in my sin. Now I'm dead to sin. And I'm alive to God. And the scripture says that I'm being conformed to the image of Christ every day of my life. And from one degree of glory to the next, I'm being conformed into the image of, of the Son. And I'm so thankful for that truth. And that truth is, is true for, for each and every person whose faith is in Christ. They're being conformed, all of you being conformed into the image of Christ. Um, and I hope that that serves as encouragement for all of you. We're going to pray. And uh, as a way of invitation, I don't want to assume anything that if you're in a place that is maybe similar to what Totter described, in a place where, you know, religiously things are okay, uh, and the rest of the week is a different story, then why not end that? Why not approach Christ and see Him, maybe in a way that you've never seen Him before, 
I know there's a lot of yeah, easy approach to Christianity and, and, and the church in general today. It's just real simple to come in and fill the space and go away and not really be confronted with the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. That He is God. And that He has something far better that surpasses the games that we sometimes try to play with God. You really can't. He knows. But the power of His glory, of His grace and His mercy in effect, taking effect in your life, if you haven't experienced that, if you don't know even for sure what that means, or maybe you think you know, but it's still for whatever reason confusing or frustrating to you. No worries and no judgment. Not from me. Let's deal with that. Let's talk about that. So after our time of worship, we'll have a couple of us up front. If you want to come and talk to one of us to pray, to kind of, you know, maybe to clarify things and what, you know, not sure really what you believe. Let's take a few minutes to talk and pray together. That's, that would be a wonderful, well-spent time with us this morning before you leave. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that Your mercy still extends as it did to Paul, as it did to Kanye, as it did to Tyler, as it did to me, as it still does to any of us here who are still wondering or in confusion or doubt. Your grace and Your mercy truly is amazing. Covering and replacing who we were with a new creation and all we can come to be with the past finally being gone and new life in You before us. Lord, you, we know that if we are set free, we are truly set free indeed. Make this place a place, Lord, this morning where we can discover and know for sure if we've been set free, what that looks like, what defines that, and how we continue to move on in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series, Glory. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Faith Works and Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonhill.org.